I'm Tim Gombus, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, Steve and I have a conversation about various versions of the novel and the film, True Grit. So I'm standing here in my study looking out on an absolutely gorgeous afternoon here in Louisville, my new hometown. The weather's been lovely. It's been really beautiful and pleasant, sunny days. And uh, as I've been taking walks around Cherokee Park in the morning with the sun coming through the trees, the morning sun just sort of lighting up the tops of the trees. It's just so beautiful. Been loving it. Uh, I watched, uh, Steve and I watched some football yesterday and um, watched the Bears-Chiefs game. The Bears are just awful. It's really, uh, there were some expectations this year that they might put some put something together and be, uh, you know, genuine competition for the Detroit Lions in the division. But man, it's just, it's it's looking brutal. The Cubs uh, were on quite a slide. They've won a bunch lately and they're managing to sort of buzz around um, the last remaining wildcard spot to make it into the playoffs. There's just like another week or so of games and it's not looking great for the Cubs. They're they're finishing off their season playing the Brewers and the Braves. And uh, that's, although sometimes when the Cubs play really good teams, they rise to the challenge. When they play bottom feeders, they typically get really complacent, and that's when they run into trouble. But if they can make the playoffs, that would be fantastic. Um, I'll be paying attention to the playoffs this fall no matter what, which you know one of my favorite times of year in the fall, baseball playoffs. Nothing tops 2016, however. That was just pure magic. I uh, One of the things I've done here since I've moved to Louisville, or, or one, of the, one of the things I'm intending to do to sort of meet folks, is uh, I've joined two book clubs. There's one that meets Tuesday night this week, and another one that meets Thursday night at the Old Louisville Brewery. Uh, the Tuesday night one meets in uh, at Carmichael's Bookstore. And... For Tuesday night, we're discussing a novel called um, uh, Burnham Wood, which was a really fantastic novel, really gripping. Loved reading it. And um, for the Thursday night book group, we are reading Jeanette McCurdy's memoir, I'm Glad My Mom Died, which I had heard about um, several months back in the spring. I was listening to uh, Glennon Doyle's podcast, We Can Do Hard Things. <clears throat> And they were speaking with Jeanette McCurdy, and it didn't register with me at the time. I, for for some reason, I never really thought to go out and get the book. I thought the discussion was really interesting, um, but I had to read it because we were discussing it this Thursday night. And oh my word, I have been telling everybody about it. It's fantastic. I just absolutely loved it. It's um, beautifully written and um, heartbreaking, uh, wonderful and warm everything just about uh Jeanette McCurdy growing up with a with a narcissistic mother really controlling mother um her mother wanted to be an actress when she was young and so sort of lived all of her dreams through Jeanette and it was her relaying the account of her experience of all of that and it's just a beautifully told story 
and um, just breezy, beautiful writing and a powerful story just in, in every single way. And I'm very much looking forward to um, discussing and hearing from other people this week, uh, touching on issues that are relevant to a lot of folks, you know, family trauma, um, religious trauma. It's all sort of um, mixed in there. Really, really wild. Uh, just to introduce this episode and the following conversation, uh, Steve and I have long enjoyed the Coen Brothers films, and we resonate, both of us, strongly with a vision of this world that they regularly portray, that of a cold and different universe in which the dramas of our lives take place. So we've talked loads about their various films and certainly about True Grit over the years, and we recently went back to it. We recently explored the novel, the earlier John Wayne adaptation of it, and went back to the Coen's version. We thought it'd be fun to continue the conversation on the podcast. It's something of a detour from the main line of what we've been exploring, but it's not too far afield. And it's likely that over the course of this season, we'll chase down some other rabbit trails as well. For now, though, here's our conversation about True Grit. We make reference to an article by Stanley Fish about the film, to which I'll place a link in the episode notes, along with the information about a book on the Coens that we mention. Enjoy. So you and I both uh, over the years have appreciated Cohen films, along with Wes Anderson films. They're sort of the lingua franca of our friendship, kind of crazy lines going back and forth, which is always a delight. And along with now uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> the, soundtrack of, the soundtrack of our friendship. Oh, totally, man. And uh, so recently, I mean, True Grit, really, the film, um, the Cohen film, you and I have appreciated it over the It came out in 2010. You and yeah. I have appreciated it over the years. Uh, you had seen, you mentioned when you were a kid, you had seen the, the John Wayne version, which came out in 1969. Right. Uh, the Charles Portis novel was written in 1968. It's crazy that the, the film was made in 1969. So quick, you know, the John Wayne version so quickly after the, the novel yeah. uh, was released. Um, and it was years before the Coens ever picked up the script. And, uh, more recently, you and I watched the the John Wayne version. You've probably seen it a couple more times than I have. But then recently you read the novel. Right. And I listened to it uh, last week when I was on a long 12-hour road trip. Um, and it's just interesting to see the differences and the similarities. Like the you know the novel, mm -hmm. um, like you mentioned this the other day, is, is, is kind of, it's a simple narrative really. But just like any narrative, it's elastic. I mean, it's got like lacunae in it. It's got openings yeah. and it's got, um, it can be played with, it can be adapted, you know, just like most stories can be. And it's it's very interesting how the John Wayne version took it in one direction and the Coens took it in a, a very different direction. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, um, I mean, there's so much to probe there, especially for, um, you know, the, the, the Coens body of work. In so many ways, offers like uh, a certain take on the world, and mm -hmm. offers depictions of um, various characters, and there are tropes that that kind of 
you can sort of discern as, you know, through their whole body of work. And there's so much wisdom to be gained. It's just so fascinating along those lines. Mm-hmm. But I wonder just even like generally, like what are some, what are some of the differences and similarities between the John Wayne version and the Cohen's uh, version that you discern? Some of the things that just generally observations yeah, well, apart from the fact that it was a 1969 film, which was really pretty hokey compared to how far filmmaking has become, yeah, it was seriously hokey. I mean that. Yeah, there, there's just that's just some general stuff. It the acting was crappy. Although it was the only film John Wayne ever won an Academy Award yeah. for. Yeah, yeah, crazy. So, kind of weird. Um, but just to see how far things have come. Um, yeah, that it was. It was. It was filmed. It to me, it was filmed like almost like a singing cowboy version type of movie. Yeah. Now they didn't really have a singing cowboy in it, but it had that like kind of vibe of like, oh, buckle up, you know, and get ready for a long ride. We can like do at it. any point they could break out into songs. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And there were, and and even the music in that movie was kind of, um. You know, kind of do 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 do. You know, yeah. carrying on in a kind of positive, um, yeah. uh, buckle up and get ready for some action kind of way. And it was, it, it had it had nostalgia and sentimentality yeah. in it that was just. Um, I mean, I think they shot it in Monument Valley or somewhere yeah. where these dramatic mountains are, and and I mean the realism. If, well, just reading the novel, if if you've been through Arkansas and out into Oklahoma, which was the Indian Territory, um, mm-hmm. and the dropping off point at Fort Smith, which I've actually been to. It's a great national park. Um, mm-hmm. Judge Parker's court and the gallows where they actually hung people there. Um, but if you've been through that area, if you've driven across country like we have many times um, – <clears throat> The book is situated in that place, and the descriptions are of Arkansas, Oklahoma. And when you look at the John Wayne version, it's just like, what is going on? This is yeah. <laughs> this is not anywhere. No Rocky close. Mountains in Arkansas. Yeah. No. So just the sentimentality, the, the nostalgia, you, you get a taste for it. I mean, she's all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in the ending. She's like, oh, here, Marshall Cogburn, have a grave next to me. You know, and and she's like all chipper, Um, but it couldn't have been more dour with the ending. In fact, one something I read might have been that Cohen book that you and I both have. The some somebody said um, it's as if the Maddie that we got to know was snatched away and replaced with a bitter, old kind of not attractive woman. Yeah, in the Cohen version. Yeah, yeah, the Cohen version. So, um, yeah, just. Just a lot of differences with the mood and um, um, just sort of a almost a sappiness in the John yeah. Wayne version. And, you know, the Coens and you, I mean, we've seen so many Cohen movies multiple times. I mean, so many that, you know, they're going to strip all of that out of there. They're just going to gut it of all sentimentality. Because in what, what they're, what they always do, well, not always, but in many of their classics, that we we dig on there's this whole um this whole message of don't expect too much in this life mm-hmm. don't you better watch your back because you know the path that you think 
is leading whatever to your your well-being, your justice, your answers, all of that is going to be be careful. It, you could be flipped on its head in a, in a second. And um, and then you know, just I, I think these t- we mentioned a serious man in our in the last talk we had. Yeah. That's so incredible to me because it's a religious movie, mm-hmm. and these are and Stanley Fish and his his um, New York Times piece said that um, this was a truly religious movie. Yeah, I thought he that said was really interesting. A rare thing. Yeah. But a truly religious movie. Um, what do you think he was getting at there? I mean, he well, mentioned I, he mentioned in uh, the Cohen version when um, Rooster uh, he makes that cross mark on Maddie's arm to suck out the venom. Mm-hmm. He also he also right. mentioned at the very beginning of the film where there was the light coming out of the house, sort of formed across. I didn't notice. I'd, I'd go back and see that. I didn't notice. Yeah, that. I didn't either. I I. I, I paid attention to that when he mentioned that yeah well i think yeah the the imagery comes through in those kinds of ways but um i think on a bigger scale um they're getting something really interesting in both serious man and true grit and and both films open with a proverb yeah one comes from a medieval rabbi rashi that says um receive with simplicity everything that happens to you in this life yeah and the and and true grit opens with um a proverb uh, from the from the Hebrew scriptures that says, um, uh, "The wicked flee when no one pursueth," and then they leave out. But the righteous are bold as a lion. Yeah, that last half, not there. And we and I've always thought for years that Maddie is the one that's righteous. Righteousness is bold as a lion, Be- mm-hmm. and and that's again what what brings it into the religious realm. It's her, un- uh, it just her her unflinching faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, she can, leaning on the everlasting arms is playing throughout that whole movie. Yeah, um, undergirding this girl's just incredible commitment to. Well, it, it's it's a revenge film. I mean, she wants yeah. revenge, yeah. and she also wants justice. Yeah, and that's something interesting because they don't always go together. Yeah, um, in fact, revenge can bite you in the ass quick. Oh yeah, much. And and justice maybe um, that gets into a whole nother thing, but yeah, her faith. She's quoting scripture. I mean, throughout that book, she's yeah. quoting scripture. There's so um, much Bible throughout the novel. I, I was shocked. Right. At that. Yeah, and yeah. they're oh, almost right. like excursions. Like she's just going off on stuff that she thinks about and that's making right. reference to Bible passages and everything. It's really interesting. It is like yeah, just talking about the demon- d- demoniac in. It was either Luke or Matthew where, yeah. you know, that Legion scenario. She just goes off and goes, well, she's going <laughs> to think sperm. about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here's what I think about that. Here's what I have to think about that. Yeah. So it's, it is, it is really, um, both of those movies are religious and I, you know, you know me, I take it into the direction of, I mean, they're, they're making statements that, um, Good and bad, however you want to define those things, they seem pretty indifferent in this mm-hmm. world. Yeah, there's not a lot of predictability to it. Um, whether you're on a righteous side, whether you're on a greedy side, it's it's it just it just so sets up uh, the undoing of how, like we we mentioned, we want causality, we want predictability, we want. You know, this is why, you know, families pray for safe travel. 
Yeah. Um, let's safe travel or let's pray. Let's pray for safe travel. Yeah. Or, you know, I still, you know, I get on a plane that's like a super jumbo jet and flying over, you know, on a 10 hour flight. And I'm thinking, how, how does this thing get off the ground? How does this work? And mm-hmm. then it always makes me go, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, are we good, Lord? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I hope everything's cool. But, you know, I'm kind of yeah. beyond all that, but it's just that. Yeah, and both of these movies are playing with how ridiculously random and capricious yeah. things seem to be. Right. Which, the way I go is I'm, that causes me all kinds of doubts in all kinds of other ways. But, but that's yeah, a common theme in the mm-hmm. like the wisdom literature, right? Like you see, you see the wicked prosper, you see the righteous mm-hmm. suffer. How do you make sense of all this? You know, yep. and I think that, um, I think you're right. Where Maddie. Ross lives in that world of hard binaries and it, and she lives in that world of um, uh, like a black and white and uh, she's clearly in the right and Tom Chaney is clearly in the wrong and so she's got like a righteous zeal and she has no self-doubt whatsoever I mean she has apt in the novel yeah and in the John Wayne version and in the uh, the Cohen version I mean she is completely self-assured in her in the righteousness of her cause you that's know? right and she's going to go after it and uh what i thought was interesting is um the 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 proverb that's the epigraph of the film the the wicked flee when none pursueth and the statement that she makes well, well first of all there's so much bible in the whole novel mm-hmm. there's so much scripture yeah. and i think the coens did a great job of capturing that by having the soundtrack be you know leaning on the everlasting arms um there's so much scripture quoted in the whole film um that what i thought was interesting is that that statement the wicked flee when none pursueth comes in the it it, it comes at a very unremarkable place in the novel but the mm-hmm. coens lift it out and put it yeah. at the beginning of the film. Like they right. have that sort of standing over the whole thing. Oh, and yeah. then what I thought was interesting is uh, the statement where she says, there's nothing free in this world. You must pay for everything in this life one way or another. There's nothing free in this world, but the grace of God. But the and grace that of God. is a statement. That's a statement that's made in the middle of an unremarkable scene in the novel. Now, all of that right. stuff is stripped out in the John Wayne version. Yeah. Um, yeah. But in the Cohen film, that that statement, there's nothing free in this world but the grace of God, and you must pay for everything in this world one way or another, that right. comes at the very start of the film where she has a short um, like narrative to set up the film. So right. I, thought, I thought what was so interesting is that it does seem to me a very religious film, um, yeah. but it's a depiction of a religious outlook that is that of like the religious zealot. Yep. You know what I mean? Like there yeah. is right and wrong. And yeah. uh this this is a world of justice and the the just get what's coming to them and the unjust get what's coming to them and she has unshakable faith in that reality. Right. And isn't it also interesting that she's an accountant? She's a bookkeeper. Oh yeah. So she's she's very attuned to you don't cheat me out of a penny. Oh totally. Mr. And so her and that that feeds into that duality that she sees the world in. It's no, it is right or wrong, and that, and it harkens back to that. There, there's nothing free in this world. Yeah, um, you know, it, it, yeah, and and it comes from her from her harsh accounting, as yeah, as the bookkeeper, as the one that keeps 
everything exactly how it should be. Yeah. You no, know, not much, not much gray for her. Yeah. But then, the, the the beauty yeah. is that she, I mean, the genius of it, and this gets into so much, is that she has such unshakable faith in the righteousness of her cause. Um, but she has, because she, well, she doesn't listen to the voices of wisdom. She doesn't mm-hmm. listen to lawyer Daggett. She doesn't yeah. listen to Rooster. She doesn't listen to Labeef. And yep. what happens is that she ends up losing her arm. Yeah. And almost she, her life. Yeah. Unless yeah. unless she was saved from the pit um, yeah. by a rooster. I mean, talk about all kinds of like imagery from the Psalms. Uh, right. Being saved uh, out of the pit. Right. Um, but I think that that's, I mean, that's the ultimate irony that the Coens capture that's like sort of faithful yeah. to the, the, the novel because the novel captures that as well. But the, yeah. the John Wayne version, like you mentioned, sentimentality, at mm-hmm. the end of that film, her arm is merely in a sling. Yeah, it's like okay. she's okay. She didn't pay any kind of price. Yeah, no. But the, the novel no. and the Cohen version are um, sending the message that indeed she's the one that discovered that there's nothing free. You must pay for everything in this world, yeah. one way or another. That's there's right. nothing free in this world but the grace of God, and she's the one that she ended up paying. Yeah, yeah. It it struck me too. There, there. <clears throat> The, the the movies that the Coens do that are are plucking some of these chords in different ways, but three of them. I mean, they do this on a number of levels in their other movies, but the three that are like so. And and it's funny. I think they came kind of in a row. Um, a Serious Man, No Country for Old Men, yeah, and and True Grit, and um, in in No Country, you have the same sort of blind commitment with Llewellyn Moss mm-hmm. wasn't that his name Llewellyn Moss yeah uh, yeah I think it was yeah Josh Brolin's right. character yeah yeah that was going after this money and meanwhile like the Woody Harrelson um interlude said he's warning him he goes I wouldn't I wouldn't pursue this yeah. you know he's trying to give him some and and a little warning, but his hard headedness comes yeah. from his absolute convince. He's absolutely convinced that he can handle any situation, any comer. Well, that's profoundly unwise. That's yeah. lacking in all humility. That the like I've always said, you know, that the toughest guys I've ever trained with in this world are some of the humblest, and they're like, no man, I'm not going to make any statements about what might be an outcome of of a serious fight or a, whatever. Um, so there's again he he's blind to to that as well. Mm-hmm. This is blindness that overconfidence. Yeah, yeah for whatever reason. Yeah, self assurance. He's in it for the money. Maddie's in it for the righteousness, for the revenge, for the yeah. justice. But there's these blind spots, and 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 then also the Coens often play, and I've mentioned this many times, is that they play with the idea of the professional versus the amateur. Yes, totally. And, and you know, like you think you're on another level. You, that's where you need some humble. <laughs> yeah, this is you know, Kuna. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Um, in No Country for Old Men, I was thinking about this this morning. Sheriff Bell, yeah, is that voice of wisdom? Exactly. When he's telling Llewellyn's wife, you know, he, he, Llewellyn doesn't know what he's mixed up in here, and he tells that parable. Yeah. About uh that farmer, I can't remember his name. 
Yeah, he shoots that farmer who slaughters beeves, and he he, he shoots him with a rifle, and and it and it paralyzes his arm. Yes, yeah. In, in a contest of man and man and beast, the outcome is never certain. See, there we go. That's that uncertainty that yes. they're sowing through everything. And somebody who's lived a while and has seen some stuff in life gets it. Like, oh, don't rush in, bucko. Yeah. But she, she's she's a novice. She's a plebe. She's just yeah. she's full of her own self and idealism and all this stuff that really gets knocked out of you when you've lived too many decades. And seen, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so she's better than her mom. At sums, which yep. is why she's the bookkeeper. Her mom can hardly spell cat. Yeah. Um, she, <laughs> you know, she bests that guy in trading for the horses and all that. Yeah. Um, she makes she makes LeBeef look stupid. Yes. Yeah. She sort and of she thinks she's better than John Wayne because he pulls a cork. So she's yeah. morally superior to him. Yeah. So those are her judgments. Yeah. She's, yeah, she's totally. above everybody. And yeah. Lawyer Daggett. I mean, in the novel, the letter, as yeah. we were saying the other day, the letter is really long. It's um, a really long letter. But the heart of it is captured. I don't even know if that even showed up in the John Wayne version, but in the Cohen version, there's that voiceover, that letter right. that uh, he writes to her, and he talks to her about her headstrong ways, that, and that they're, yeah. they're getting, her headstrong ways are going to get her into trouble. Get her in and a tight then, spot. <laughs> yes. And then um, uh, Rooster and LaBeef try to let her know like leave this to the professionals yeah exactly um but she wants and and this is you know she is so self-assured i've been on a coon hunt it's the same thing yeah Yeah. he's like no it's not the same thing there's uh what does he say it's uh likely to get lively out there gonna need yeah to get lively out there yeah Yeah, exactly he knows yeah totally that voice of wisdom that shows up in uh, well, in uh, in the Big Lebowski, Walter is always yeah. raging about amateurs. Yeah, um, right. But then that shows up also in No Country. Who re- uh, the amateur re- rejects the voices of wisdom, and Maddie also rejects voices of wisdom, thinking that she knows what she's doing. Exactly. She forgot about that snake pit, though. Man, there's always that's what Stanley Fish said in that article. There's always that snake pit. Yeah. Actually, to interesting the to the right. Yeah, totally. In yeah. um, there's a I think one of the best statements of this whole thing about the uncertainty of life and the unpredictability of it, and which is why you need to be wise in the middle of all that unpredictability. I thought one of the best statements came in Hail Caesar, when um, the main uh, this this big time actor gets kidnapped, and one of these Western uh, actors is talking to the head of the studio. And he says, you know, I would I would look at those extras. He goes, because I tell you what, so-and-so on the grip over there and so-and-so on the dolly, I know these guys. They show up to work every day, but it's those extras. They're the oh, ones that get you. And it's just interesting. an interesting play on extras. It's like these these yeah. these characters that are just day actors, and, and you don't know them, and they come in, and they're unpredictable. Right. I thought that was a fascinating way of yeah. capturing what the Coens are getting at throughout their body of work, that in right. – this kind of cold, capricious universe that is indifferent. Um, This sort of like godless world where um, uh, 
yeah, the, the causality cannot be tracked. Like you just cannot tie it together. You cannot tie it down. You no. can't make sense of the world as it is. In the middle of all that, there's just so much unpredictability, and yeah. you got to be wise. You got to watch yourself because you don't know what's going to come and bite you in the ass. It gets kind of disheartening in some ways because you. I want things to be beautiful and everything to turn out all right. Oh, totally. Like just this morning, I, I was outside reading, doing my morning reading session, and we have this this little goat next door that comes over. Yeah. It's cute as a button, and I've named it Marshmallow. <laughs> and um, I, I feed it, uh, I feed it like cracked corn, and it loves it. And um, the, just this morning, so there's there's these birds, and we all. Like, I have chickens, but my neighbor has a turkey and some little funky-looking bird and two big roosters, and they come walking over in my yard. I love it because yeah. I love seeing everybody, and I love seeing nature. Like, it's just beautiful, and they're so sweet and pretty. Yeah. Well, this morning, this this goat got a wild hair, starts trying to trample down these birds. He's really? chasing them all over the yard, just, like, wanting to stomp on them or something. What and I'm like— heck? Oh, oh, one minute it's really cute, and now, yeah. oh, leave those things alone. You know, like, what is going on? It, it's like such a mixed grill, this world. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think they, they deal with a lot of that. It's like one minute, everything's looking up, Mr. Bluebird's on my shoulder, and poof, yeah. the next minute. I know. A storm coming down. Got some guy <laughs> peeing on your rug. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Breaking into your apartment. Painting storm clouds. Yeah. Oh my god. But anyway, yeah, it's it's in yeah, the 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 fact that they play with things happening without meaning. Yeah. Randomly. Randomly. Cuz yeah. we want we're meaning-seeking creatures and maybe that's what separates us from animals that just kind of tend to accept it. Like whatever it is. Well, I'm dying. Okay. Yeah. But we're like, "Oh, oh, oh. What does this mean? Uh who caused this, you know?" It's 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 funny how we're as creatures we're we we're, we definitely want to seek meaning we want to yeah. we want reasons for stuff to happen it's like it's like you and I have talked about like we love a nice lush yard a, a lawn and like when you go for a dry spell and there's no rain like we're in a dry spell right now the yard looks terrible it's just brown it, it pisses me off I'm like whoa, whoa. I want an answer for why yeah. this is happening why yeah. can't my why can't it just rain and I have a nice beautiful yard well. It's just because there is no meaning to it. It just sucks. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Uh, I think that's one of the – I think that's why I love seeing Proverbs, Ecclesiastes um, as being like in a, um, in a conversation and Job. Like mm -hmm. these wisdom um, texts that are in conversation where Proverbs does in so many ways capture that clean causality. Right. W work hard. Everything works out. Lazy Generally man, speaking. you know, nothing, nothing works out for the lazy man. Yeah. Um, uh, do you see a man who's poor, doesn't have good work ethic? You see a man who's rich, yeah. has good work ethic. And yeah. then like Ecclesiastes like scrambles all that. It's like, what really? Mm -hmm. Nah, doesn't yeah. work out that way. That's not exactly how right. it goes. And, right. and Job, I mean, it's so like there are these texts in conversation trying to grapple with, with the world as it is. And it's really yeah. interesting. Um, <clears throat> this Jewish text that I think in some ways Paul is in conversation with in Romans, uh, wisdom of Solomon is a Jewish text, uh, from right about, uh, the first century. 
that actually articulates brilliantly that kind of um, clean causality. Mm. Um, you know, the Gentile, uh, you know, the nations uh, are, are, are headed for judgment. Israel is being disciplined by the Lord, but when they repent, they're going to be saved. The, you know, the nations are beyond, you know, they're in the category. It's, it's, it's basically the most brilliant statement of that uh, essentialist view. The yeah. nations are hopelessly lost. I mean, they're, they're going to be, they're, they're headed for only judgment, whereas right. Israel, even when they're disobedient, can be turned back to the Lord and they eventually will be saved. They are the ungodly. We are the godly. I mean, it's just this very clean, uh, and I think Paul's scrambling with that whole um, essentialist view when he talks about how God is the God that justifies the ungodly, yeah. um, completely scrambling all those categories uh, because it's just it's not that kind. We, this world is simply not that kind of world where you can right. look at events in the world and draw all these larger conclusions. And I think that's the brilliance of the Cohen's overall project is they're portraying that. It's yeah. experience. I mean, life in this world is this experience of, of uh, cold indifference. Yeah. There, there's not, uh, you, you can't tie everything down. No. Good people are going to be lonely and heartbroken and despondent. Uh, the wicked are going to have a blast. Or I mean, it doesn't, a lot of this just doesn't matter, and you cannot tie it down. It doesn't follow any rules, any discernible rules, anyway. Yeah, seriously. But don't yeah, I mean, you think honestly, that, that sound. I think that I think that uh, so many Christian folks, and certainly folks from our evangelical heritage, surrender or capitulate. They don't realize they have, but they're sort of captive. I think that's a large part of American Christianity over the last hundred and some years, certainly probably beyond that going back to the Victorian era in the mm-hmm. 19th century, but there it's so laced with sentimentality. It's so it's sentimental from top to bottom. I mean, Christian radio yeah. is encouraging and uplifting radio. Everything's uplifting yeah. and encouraging. Oh, yeah. um, you can't, you can't talk about the dark shades of life and all that kind of stuff. Well, you know, Bono, when he talks to Eugene Peterson, there's a really cool clip where he tr- Bono travels to Montana, uh, to mm-hmm. Flathead Lake, where Peterson, B- Peterson passed away several years ago. But um, they're having this discussion, and um, they talk about Christian music. And, yeah. and Bono's like, yeah, it's just really disappointing that that it's not more honest. That yeah. Like, I want to hear a song about my, my bad marriage, or I want to hear a song about how I'm pissed off at the government. Um, yeah. Be real, you know, yeah. speak, speak truth. Don't speak this cloying. Oh, everything's just peachy keen when it's not. Yeah. Or else you just don't have a heart. If you look around and you think everything's cool, if you, the, the amount of suffering and that's, that's what's always gotten me is the scale of it, man. It's, yeah. it, it's not even 50, 50. It's like, poof. Ninety yeah. ten. I mean, it's like a lot of really bad. And, and you know, I've had the privilege of traveling to some crazy places in the world. I mean, we've both traveled a lot abroad, but boy, I, you know, we kind of get insular. I think in American society, and you know, in the places we go are great places. I'm going to go to Cabo. Yeah, I'm going to go to Ireland. Well, those are nice places to go, and I love going there. But it's we only see a selection of what's really out there and that, yeah. that always kind of tr- drives me crazy. Yeah, for sure. I just was thinking that 
the sentimentality that orients American Christianity does not give us the scope for grappling with the hard realities of life. No. Tragedies the of movies life. Do. Oh, totally. Well, they're telling the truth. Yeah. They're telling the truth about what it is like um, to experience this world, to be a human in this world. The human condition in this world is like that. And it's yeah. really unfortunate to me that, um, I mean, I do think that the Christian scriptures portray the gritty realities. I mean, the gospels tell the story of God himself arriving into this world and he gets killed. That's mm -hmm. not sentimental. You know, the new Testament writers are in no way sentimental, but uh, I know I was raised in a look on the bright side kind of Christianity or yeah. if you were to talk about the hard realities of life, you are in some way questioning God. Right. Are you talking about how there is injustice in this world? You're somehow questioning God because I think it gets back to that causality and that that essentialism, where it's like you don't want to point out how things don't add up. You don't want to point out yeah. how you know I did everything right and it all blew up in my yeah. face. You know, I mean, Job's just, friends didn't want to hear it. <laughs> I know. Well, that they're they're articulating that exact same viewpoint, yeah. but I think yeah. that's what's refreshing about the Cohen's project is they're just telling the truth about this world. Yep. You know, the hard realities all, of this world. Yeah, and all of its rawness. Yeah, yeah. its ugliness. I wanted to uh, hit some other elements of, like, the sentimentality. I was thinking about one where in the, um, in the novel, Labeef doesn't die. And in the Cohen film, Labeef doesn't die. Right. She never gets back in touch with him, but, I mean, he just goes on. But in the John Wayne version, he dies. He dies. That's... Which I thought was really interesting. I mean, I was thinking, is, he, is that in some way um, kind of valorizing his death? I mean, he dies sort of like helping to save Maddie. And yeah. then um, does that in some way clear? Because in the John Wayne version, there's some kind of like romantic chemistry yep. going on between the beef and maddie ross does that does yep. that does his death in some way kind of clear ground clear space for rooster to have some kind of romantic relationship with maddie because at the end she's telling him like she wants him to be buried right next to her and they kind of have like some sweet yeah. moments and he's going to come back and visit her and then he jumps the horse over the fence <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's so ridiculous yeah it's kind of silly uh yeah, I don't know. Could be. Yeah, that he was kind of the sacrificial lamb. Yeah. The beef. Um, sort of an expendable yeah. character, really. Yeah, he was an expendable character. Yeah, Rooster and Maddie kind of get away scot-free. Right. right. Yeah, he is a total goofball. Glenn Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah and, he, and I think Matt Damon did a good job in portraying that kind of well, I don't know what word you'd put on it. He was just a goof. Like yeah. we have kind no of rodeo clownish. clowns in Yale County. Oh, totally, man. You boys still uh, mounted up on sheep down there. <laughs> just so yeah. many good lines. Yeah, the other yeah, but... the other sentimental aspect that we have already mentioned, but there are no there are no consequences in the John Wayne version for Maddie's pursuit of revenge. Mm -hmm. I mean, she she has her arm at the end, even though yeah. in the novel in the Cohen version, she loses her arm. Right. Which no, exactly right. is really interesting. You pointed out, I mean, the whole use of that song, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, 
There's layers to that. Yeah, there are. That, in fact, I wonder if you could say, uh, in the in the middle of this gritty film that portrays these hard realities, that that is almost, um, that's almost a sentimental overlay. The, this beautiful music, but yeah. and it's toyed with in some ways in the film. It is. I think then them getting Iris Dement to do the the song, the actual hymn, and she sings it at the very end when the credits are rolling. Mm-hmm. Um, she has a voice that is able to. I don't. I can't explain it, man. She's amazing, and her voice. It's it's a a whiny. Uh, she. I mean, only I, I really can't think of many singers like Iris Dement who could do this. And she does it all the time, and somehow it's beautiful when she does it. Mm-hmm. But it can also be really like almost um, a mockery hmm. of the song because her voice has such inf- just this. Uh, why I don't know. I don't know the musical terms, but this whiny inflection in it that is just it's kind of uncanny. Um, but yeah, but and and, and you know, the what I was thinking about too recently is how. Leaning on the everlasting arms, like she's okay. Yeah, like I think um, I think Stanley Fish mentioned that there were two realities being portrayed simultaneously: the worldly reality where you can see things and you you know what's happening, mm-hmm. and the otherworldly reality that we're invisible to, where who knows what in the hell's going on, <laughs> because it surely isn't adding up. Mm-hmm. If the world isn't even adding up. But I was thinking, you know, she's thinking about the realm of leaning on the everlasting arms and, and like this um, almighty father who's going, whose arms she's singing about. Mm-hmm. But in reality, it is she ends up in Rooster's arms. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. I mean, he's the one who delivers her. It's, it's his arms yeah. that saves delivers her. her, brings her up out of the pit. Yeah. <laughs> he's it's, it's, she could have laid in that pit and been singing that song all day long, but I <laughs> <laughs> wasn't. Yeah, that's not going to help matters in yeah. this world. Yeah, it's a rooster that saves her. This guy is sort of like relatively lawless. Yeah, and that literally carry her at the yeah. very end. That's right. When the horse gives out, and he, he's got her in his arms. Yeah. But that's, you know, this notorious thumper <laughs> who's not exactly <laughs> the paragon of religious. He goes, I've had that line in my head what? all week, the notorious thumper. He goes, what's the be- one of the best lines I think in that whole movie is he, he's like, don't believe in fairy tales or sermons or story about money, but thank you baby for the sister. cigarette, baby sister. I love that. That's not in the novel. No, I know. They it. threw that in there. I think it's brilliant. It is really brilliant. Yeah. He, he believes in what he believes in and everything yes. else. Can, he's seen too much reality to start yeah. believing in these, these kind of fairy tales that come in all these different yeah. forms. I don't believe you have $50. <laughs> love it it's so great yeah and what was the other dynamic going on with um leaning on the everlasting arms is it plays out as she's descending the other side of the hill at the very end of the film so she's right. walking away with one arm <clears throat> as the as the song is playing out just so it's just I yeah th- i think they're messing with any notion of sentimentality I, like they're just sort of sticking the knife in right i totally think that's what they're doing um and just knowing the cohen's as we do sure they're gonna do that yeah yeah they're gonna suck it all out with a vacuum cleaner and 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 mess with it intertextually mess with you know 
all these different themes yeah. all at once. You know, I thought it was interesting from that chapter in the Cohen book uh, when he mentioned that um, uh, Maddie's freak out. You know, her she's she's delirious. I mean, she's the venom mm-hmm. is sort of coursing through her body mm-hmm. as Rooster's racing for Bagby's store. Right. Um, but she's like, uh, she's upset about. I mean, she's trying to fight off Rooster. You know, just sort of like a, she's just manic in some way or just delirious. And then she's really upset about Blackie. Mm-hmm. And he made the point that she's sort of like recoiling from or grieving or mourning the reality that she's crossed over to some other side. She yeah. was. Plausibly, mm. she could tell herself this anyway. Righteous, pure yeah. as the driven snow. You know, her her absolute self assurance of the righteousness of her cause. She could have, you know, legitimately told herself that. But in seeking revenge, in, in she's become like Rooster. Yeah, who, uh, whom she probably looked down on. You know, she and, did. had and judged for being some kind of you know some drunk that hung out in the back of a Chinese yeah. you know store. Bewailing his station, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's all, yeah. That's no. I think that's and now right. she's with him. Yeah, she's crossed. She's crossed the Rubicon. Yeah, crossed the Styx River. She's like, it, it could even be almost a coming of age, uh, a deflowering yeah. moment in some ways, not not in the traditional way, but just that she's awakening to a world that yeah. she had no idea existed, yeah. and now. Man, back yeah. to the drawing board. It's not that 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 zip in her step that she had when she rolled into Fort Smith. Oh yeah, is is long gone. If if never to be recovered. Yeah. Because in, in the Coens and in the book, I mean, I think the the trajectory goes more toward her. It's like, I'm not going to get married. Never had time for it. Just buckle down. Yeah. And um, and become kind of this bitter old maid. Yeah, that's the thing. That's what she's become. And her eyes are darkened at the end, and she's sort of mm-hmm. grim-faced, um, just has sort of like a meanness set in. Yeah. And a darkness. And and that's what, I, I don't know if it was Stanley Fish or was that chapter in the book. Yeah, that youthful Maddie Ross is long gone. Long gone. That's just not her yeah. anymore. I think that was Fish. I was thinking um, this morning that uh, there's a sense in which True Grit and um, Oh Brother, uh, especially, I'm trying to think if there's other one. You maybe could say this about A Serious Man, uh, but A Serious Man there's, takes place within the world of Judaism and you know the Jewish script, your Hebrew scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just thinking about how it is that in Oh Brother, <clears throat> there's... It takes it takes place within the imaginative world of the Bible. Like the Bible shapes yeah. the imagination. It's like old timey religion. Yeah, you know. Um, and True Grit, the novel for sure, but the Cohen's version, um, it's saturated with the world of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, even when uh, you know when she's in the the boarding house and she talks about Ezekiel and the Valley of the Dry Bones. Yeah. So I mean, it's like this: the the Cohens are portraying these dramas these these narratives that play out in in bible-shaped worlds for sure um but there's a sense in which they're distortions 
Do you know what I mean? Like they're they're not they're they're it's like scripture is put to use like for purposes of revenge. Um, yeah. You know, I guess I guess what I'm trying to get at is it's possible to have like a and this is because this is just such a big part of my story yeah. and our stories. It's possible to like inhabit um, the language, a, a world in which Bible language plays such a massive part, but to completely miss it, to have that Bible language be manipulative. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, and this is like what I, I think the, dis, the distinction is helpful for me to distinguish between like, um, you know, if we talk about scripture as a language set, it's helpful to, to distinguish between the vocabulary and the grammar, like the deep logic yeah. of how the language actually works. And the right. cones are portraying these worlds that are so filled with, you know, the verbiage of scripture, but, um, lacking in the grammar Right. of scripture like lacking in grace lacking in forgiveness i mean yeah. just even the way that ever you know uh ulysses everett mcgill when he's <laughs> when they're in the restaurant and he says uh you know pete serves him right he's fixing to fornicate with some horror babylon <laughs> horror babylon i know <laughs> i mean just bible language just comes to his it, it just comes you know what i mean it's just it's Why there not? at the tip of yeah. his tongue i mean put to the completely just bizarro use but it's there there might have been more uh, biblical kind of, like, as you say, I like the way you say it, uh, the vocabulary, but not the grammar. That's a very helpful distinction. But I, th- I bet you there's more in No Brother than, than True Grit, even though yeah. there's some in both. Because they're always like, you know, and, and, and like when those people come down to that river to be baptized, yes, it's like they're in totally. a trance or something. It's like, what, what in the world? Yeah. It's like, oh, water's fine. But it's yeah. like, whoa. And and yeah, you yeah. have these counter voices all through it that kind of almost spoof on it, mm-hmm. kind of make fun of it, really. Yeah. Well, I think they're but sending it up because it's worthy of being sent up. It's it's worthy yeah. of of mockery because it's like it's the there are these cultures that have all of these anti human prejudices and social arrangements of injustice. And um, all these characters that are like nefarious actors or scoundrels, right? But they all use Bible talk. Yeah, you know, it just and poking fun at how cheap it is. Like, oh, I just got baptized. Uh, I'm good. Yeah, and it's like, no, well, all my sins and transgressions have been washed away. Yeah, including that piggly wiggly I knocked <laughs> off in Yazoo. It's like you're not taking. Oh yeah, you you're just grabbing on to salvation because it's it's fitting for you right now, but you're not really reckoning with what you've right. done or who you are. Yeah. It's like, yeah, quick patch, I'm good. Yep, jump in the, the water. water. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Come on yeah. down, boys. The water's fine. <laughs> so great. So yeah, I just think it's helpful or I'm at it's it resonates with my own experience of having been raised in a culture where there was just so much Bible talk. I mean, the, mm. the the narrative world in which I was raised was Bible. It was just Bible yeah. 24-7. But, um, I mean, genuine systems um, that were degrading to humans in a variety of ways were just never reckoned with. Right. You know? I mean, it just gives the lie to, to just... Uh, I, yeah. wonder, I wonder if it's a um, sort of an unconscious... Uh, uh, an unconscious way of just avoiding the real tough questions. Um, because, you know, I have a lot of questions and the ones that I want to ask are not welcome. 
yeah. in a lot of uh, of the Christian circles that I've come out of and, and been in in my past, you know, they don't want to hear that question. Yeah. And I, what I'm getting at is I think, it, I think it points to a very, very ugly truth that they just don't want to reckon with. Yeah. But it's more escapism, more nostalgia, more sentimentality, more— Yeah. I was going to say, that's the sentimental side of things where it's like, hey, come on, just be polite. Yeah, just be nice. Know? Yeah, this is all about just being a bunch of polite white folk. Yeah, you know, God will talk about. All... Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of... Really? Yeah. When my when my when my child hits a tree going sixty miles an hour and that's it. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Well, these things like well, just like Maddie Ross, uh, that very black and white and sentimental way of seeing the world works mighty fine until you're like 14 years old and then you come up against a hard reality where it just it blows your categories and i yeah yeah, i was talking to someone recently about this and um they were mentioning um how it is that usually it's too bad that you know you you hit a crisis and then you do a lot of reevaluating the naive a, a naive form of faith that you inherited yeah and I'm like, yeah, that's 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 often how it works. I get it. Um, but why not take the initiative? Why not take the initiative and get out front? I mean, this is what Stanley Harwas talks about quite a bit. Why not take the initiative and get out front of all that and actually be formed in a kind of faith where you can ask the hard questions and you can talk about the uncomfortable bits and you can talk about how it doesn't all add up and really grapple well with Christian scripture and be un- and and be comfortable living with yeah. the questions and, and persevering with questions instead of just always grasping for, for clarity. Right. You know, comfortable I, I, with uncertainty. Oh, totally. I think that just gets, <laughs> it goes back to everything that we've talked about where yeah. it's like, we we're all gripping hard. We, we just want every, we're kind of bearing down, hoping that it all works out. Um, which generates so much anxiety because we know deep down that it just probably isn't going to, and there are no guarantees. No. You know, and there's so much fear that goes along with that, fear that we'll be exposed, fear that, um, you know, we're going to come up against some answers that kind of blow our categories, fear that we're going to come into contact with a universe that actually is cold and indifferent. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't care, you know, that I sort of crossed all my T's and dotted all my I's. Um, yeah, I, I just wish for, in my life, I do wish I had gotten out front of a lot of that sooner. Yeah. Um, rather than having some bumps in the road drive reevaluation, but I don't know. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. And you, at least every moment you're alive, you can push forward and yeah. you don't have to look back. And that's, that's a real, uh, treasure to me to not yeah. have to. Yeah, and I have to figure it out, and I have to go back, but go forward. Yeah, totally. I mean, that is the beauty of, like, uh, another day. Yeah. Lessons learned, staying in conversation and, and figuring it out, and also um, getting back to just being committed to showing up, honestly, every day with all my questions, mm. um, all my doubts, grappling with grappling with all those and speaking honestly and being in genuine conversation instead of checking out in sentimentality or easy answers there's yeah. no way forward everybody's no part for of answers it. this ain't no coon hunt <laughs> yeah. 
Dude, no so sure. funny to kick all this around. Yeah. We'll do it again down the road. For sure. <laughs>